Okay, number one. According to the notes, ours is the best of all possible worlds. That's actually the way I lean to is true. True. Yeah. I didn't like it. And it's 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 direct quote out of the notes, so there's no trick on that one too. Yeah, but it was qualified, wasn't it? No. Because I just read it. Let's see. Yeah. By arguing for divine and omnisapiens, we are arguing that ours is the best of all possible worlds. Okay. The world with the least possible. Right. Yeah, and 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 the point being, it's not uh, obviously. It's not the best as I might think it. Right. It's not the best as we might think it, or the world with the least evil. But for God's purposes, it couldn't be better. That was no qualifier, I was thinking. Yeah. I mean, there there are some who would say there are other equal worlds that God could have, uh, but nothing could possibly be better than the one we have. So, it does seem to be a a fact that he is all-wise. It does seem to be a necessary implication of that. Number two, God is more holy than he is loving. False, yeah. yeah, and and again, that's part of that discussion. That holiness, in some sense, does inform the expression of love in a way that love doesn't ex- doesn't qualify his holiness. Nonetheless, it doesn't mean that he's more of one or the other. It's just uh, it's just a matter of the uh, the standard involved. Okay, sorry, I'm just going to tell you all that the pages. Oh, that I copy. I copied those pages that were missing right there. You want to pass? I was around that with two pages. Do I need to get Mike up in here? Uh, Somebody's doing. Yeah. Um. Stop. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Logan, we figure with low Logan. attendance, you'd just uh, put it into the resource center. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one sheet of paper. Or? Yes, that that there's two pages. Okay. It's been a long day when I can't remember Logan's name. That's when you call him Lance. Yeah. If I can't remember your name, you automatically become a Lance. So, number three, why can't God create a rock that is too large for him to lift? There's a couple of ways you could answer that, but. <clears throat> I might put this just theological that okay. the greatest yeah. can make something greater than the greatest. Okay, so it, so it is illogical. He's constrained by his character. Yeah, I think that probably ends up being the more theological. That's the logical answer. This is probably the theological answer mm-hmm. here. That uh, it would it would be contrary to his nature. He only uh, the, the, by definition. Remember, our definition of omnipotence is that he can do anything consistent yeah. with his own nature, mm-hmm. character, and decree. And since building a rock larger than he can lift would not qualify. He's no under no obligation to do so. So, it, so no. He and, and but and you're but you're right though. Logically, since logic is an extension of his own character, there can be no there can be no 
illogic in God. So, so both of those answers, I think, yeah, answer the question just come at it from a little different angle. What are the two aspects of divine holiness? I can read it. Okay, so ethical purity. What was put separateness apart from creation? Was okay, that the, that's the but, uh, well, yeah. There's there, yeah. There's the separateness from all that all that is not God, which we call his majestic transcendence. That's what I couldn't remember that name. And then his ethical purity, his separation from all that is sinful, which puts which is again why why holiness sort of is unique in that it sort of has its feet in both. Categories, the, category, the moral attributes and the natural attributes. So, so again, it contributed to that whole discussion as to whether there's some sort of priority to be placed on holiness over the other attributes. Okay? That makes sense, then? Okay, well, let's hop into our notes, then. We're on page 37. Finishing up this discussion of holiness, what does holiness look like practically? Okay? And uh, we have... Uh, two things here, righteousness and justice, which in, in, in many ways, they're the same thing. In fact, if you look in Hebrew and Greek, the same, the same word governs both of these concepts. Nonetheless, theologically speaking, we tend to distinguish them in English. So let's go ahead and do that. Righteousness is the conformity to a standard. So in God, it's that perfection of his character whereby he exhibits, exhibits perfect conformity to himself, to his own holy standard. So there's two senses here. God's righteousness with respect to himself. Remember, in, say, say what is self. So God's righteousness in himself is the eternal and absolute conformity of God to his own being. God is self-consistent. He's a God of integrity. But God's righteousness ab extra, that is, it, its expression is reflected in the imputed righteousness of Christ, that is, it's a gift of his righteousness that is given to us and secured for, the cross, on the, for believers on the cross and then granted to us in our salvation. So we talk about righteousness in both ways. God is perfect, has perfect integrity, is perfectly self-consistent, and always conforms to his own character. And then he grants his own righteousness uh, to those who call on his name. Okay, so, biblical proof. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways. So he's always consistent with his own being character. And then Isaiah, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. They will say of me, the Lord alone is righteousness and strength. Okay, and so right, integrity, and righteousness are italicized there. They're actually all three the same uh, Hebrew root. So uh, so it's just a matter of, of, uh, of uh, stylistic, um, you know, uh, not, they don't want to have sameness in all these words here. So it's a, diversity of words, but the same same word is used in Hebrew. So what does it look like? What does God's righteousness look like? Well, it means negatively he must punish those who do not conform to his own righteous standard. He has to punish the unrighteous. 
Romans 3 says this, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak humanly. By no means. If that were true, how would God judge the world? God judges the world because he has to, because he's a righteous God. It's not something that's optional for him. He must uh, judge the world because he is a righteous God. We're on page 37 here, talking about righteousness. So, negatively, it shows up in punishing the unrighteous. It also shows up positively in rewarding the righteous. This, again, is something that's obligatory in God. God is not unrighteous. He does not forget your work of love. So there is necessarily reward awaiting for those of us who act righteously. In the middle, you say, is this negative or positive? And the answer is yes. In chastening his his people, calamity fell on the people because the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all of his deeds. This is, I say it's in the middle because uh, when God is dealing with sinning saints, it is not properly to be described as a punishment per se, but rather a remediation. So it looks externally just like a punishment of, of the evildoer, but its purpose is different. Its purpose is to remediate, and so therefore I say it's both positive and negative all in one. You know, just like when you, you know, you chastise your children it doesn't seem pleasant but uh, at the same time you've got a bigger picture in view and that's why you do it and God does the same because he's righteous we also see God's righteousness manifested most visibly in the cross of Christ I'll look this one up here because it's it's significant Uh, Romans 3 25 and 26 here It says here, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this in order to demonstrate his justice. It had to be this way. This is why the atonement unfolds the way it did. Uh, he, He had to suffer. He had to be offered a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice. Because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. And so you can see here both of these aspects of righteousness in in one. So he is righteous. That is, is, he is perfectly consistent with himself. He has to express his holiness in the form of a punishment. On whom must the punishment fall? Well, it must fall on the righteousness or one or on the on the unrighteous or upon one who stands in for them. Okay, so this this in order to be consistent with his own character, God had to display his righteousness by punishing Jesus Christ. And yet this was also the way he might justify, that is, to extend his righteousness out, share it with uh, us, so that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ. Okay, so both of these aspects of, of righteousness show up in this uh, verse 26 here in a rather uh, fascinating way. Does that make sense? Okay. So propitiation, I say, is necessary to 
show God's righteousness because, uh, because for this reason. We also find God's righteousness exhibited in the forgiveness of sin. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. Okay, so it's 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 his faithfulness that gives us the, the expression of his goodness that gives us the opportunity to repent. It's his righteousness that allows him to forgive us uh, when he when he when we repent. Okay, so that's righteousness. Justice is very similar to it, but we tend to think of it more as the administration of God's righteous standard. So we think of God's righteousness as the law, if, if we could put it that way, what God expects. This is what conformity to his character looks like. And then justice is the perfect administration of that righteous standard in his universe. Again, there's two aspects, retributive and remunerative. We tend to think of justice largely, uh, or judgment in, in largely negative terms because we tend to think in terms of retributive justice, this justice whereby he exercises holy wrath against those who violate his righteousness. But there is also a positive judgment, talk about the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, in which the primary result is reward, right? So God remunerates, uh, shows benevolence towards all those who conform to his righteous standard. Both are made possible by the obedience of Christ. Okay, so we find here, Genesis 18, Far be it from you to kill the righteous along with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? In other words, this is in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is living there in Sodom. And uh, Abraham is making his plea for the the life of his nephew there, and and this is his argument. You know, there's you can't just judge the the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's good people there, and you're a you're a righteous and a and a you're both a, a good and a righteous God. You can't you can't just you know just wipe out everybody. Now, there's probably a sense in which Abraham is incorrect because uh, God could judge all. I mean, here's. Lot obviously in sin here, and then we also have the whole idea of—I don't know if we could call this collateral damage here. Uh, God does not hold guilty the innocent. Uh, nonetheless, sometimes the innocent suffer on account of the sins of others. I mean, that's probably most easily seen in, in the children of, of sinners. You know, if dad's drunk. Uh, the child is not liable or guilty of drunkenness nonetheless he suffers for it you know he's he suffers for it um and so so abraham in one sense is incorrect here but his but his but his theology is is largely sound here uh, why would you kill the righteous along with the wicked you should be discriminating because that's what a just god does and i know you're just and so this is his argument that he makes romans 2 God will give to each person according to what he has done. Those who, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and those who reject the truth and follow evil, he will give wrath and anger. And this is, this is again, both a warning and a, a comfort. 
I mean, there's there's times when you're plugging along through life, and you just you just wonder sometimes what's what's the point of all this? And yet we have promises like these that that pop up routinely here to give us assurance that God is going to reward those of us who do good by doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, and there will be a reward for it. So I don't know if anybody coming in here tonight or just. You know, just sort of ready to hang it all up. There's promise for it. I think it's a very significant one. And it derives from the character of God, his his justice. (coughs) Second Thessalonians 1, God is just again. What does that mean? Well, he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those of you who are troubled and to us as well and will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is, again, a context of People who are waiting for the for the uh, for the eschaton to begin, for the last times to begin, they um, there's there's a there's a, a a fear among some that they may have missed the uh, the the rapture because things are so bad, um, and, a, and a general sense of despair because because the Roman Empire is just pounding on Christians at this point, and so there's. There's this thought, you know, why bother? But there's this assurance here, God's just. He'll pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Might not be in the timing that you like, but it'll happen. It'll happen. That'll make things right. Okay. Questions up to the, up to this point? Well, let me let me put some questions out there then. Okay, some objections that people raise to God's justice. One, how can a righteous God be jealous? In fact, this is a term that's rather routinely used of God in the Old Testament. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Uh, We tend to think of jealousy as a negative feature. Uh, If someone is jealous, that's envy. Seems to be, you know, he seems to be lumped under the tenth commandment there, right? As you, you shouldn't be jealous. You shouldn't be envious. So, so what is it? Uh, or how can how can a just God, a righteous God, there be here be jealous? Well, I say here, jealous is an intolerance of rivalry or an intolerance of unfaithfulness. Okay, for God, this is not wrong. Because he is perfectly deserving of the exclusive attention of his creatures. Now, we tend to think of jealousy being wrong. You know, know, teenage girls in school, and they've got their eye on some guy, and some other girl, you know, weasels in there, and then there's jealousy, and and we say that that's that's petty, that's that's just wrong. Why? Well, it's because uh, they they have an intolerance of rivalry. Well, that's. That's just, you know, that's part of life. There's rivalry in life. Now, if someone's trying to horn in on your wife, uh, you ought to be jealous, and that would be an appropriate thing at that point, because you have an exclusive right to her attentions. And so, therefore, jealousy in that situation is good. So, So saying that God is a jealous God, who tolerates no rivalry and tolerates no unfaithfulness is actually a good feature in God. Um, because if he would tolerate a rival, you know, tolerate another God, an, an, an alternative deity, 
Uh, this, this would be a violation of his own nature and character. If he would be tolerant of unfaithfulness, uh, then, then this would just be wrong. This would be unjust for him to not be jealous, right? And so jealousy here uh, is, is necessary in God, which is why the description here is made. It's not often appropriate for us, although sometimes yes. Second question, how can a righteous God... Here's a big one that you know, comes up all the time. How is it that a righteous God can be a party to a genocide here? Uh, Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20 are both descriptions of uh, the conquest of the Canaanites, and it's in rather stark terms. Yeah, let's, I'll just go to the one in chapter 20 here, uh, verses 16 and 17. However, the cities of the nations of the Lord your God are giving to you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. <laughs> Completely destroy them. Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Okay, so, this is pretty, pretty blunt here. We'll wipe them out. If they, if they breathe, kill them. Uh, other atrocities as well. I put in Psalm 137, 9 is one of the uh, more famous of the imprecatory psalms, these psalms breathing out judgment upon the enemies of Israel. And the statement here is, Blessed is he that dashes the head of the Babylonian babies against the rocks. Okay. Which is just rather graphic and startling. Uh, how could someone pray this way? And we assume because it's an inspired prayer, it must be an appropriate prayer. So, so how how do we how do we how does God come off uh, speaking in those terms? How do we talk in, in, in those terms about God? How does God tell people to just wipe out everything that breathes, man, women, children, animals? Well, I say here, the matter of punitive severity has to be measured firstly against the severity of the offense and also the virtue of the one offended. In both cases here, the punishment was meted out against those who had for centuries engaged in the foulest forms of idolatry and had relentlessly abused God's covenant people, which are offenses (laughs) directly leveled at an infinitely holy God and, in fact, uh, if we we think about it, there, there were promises made that God would do this. And there's warnings issued. You do this to my people, and this is the this is the punishment you're going to get. Probably the most difficult thing about both of these is it involves what we tend to think of as innocent people, you know, the babies dashed heads against the rocks and such. But I still say that's even that even that is not a tension for God, because one Culpability for collateral damage in war does not necessarily rest with the aggressor. It may, but doesn't necessarily. And so, you know, certainly it's not something that you seek to do in war. But if it happens because, you know, people put shields of children around you and a, and a child dies on that account, that, 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 the, the culpability doesn't fall on the aggressor at that point. It falls on the one who was putting the children in harm's way. So, so realize that the collateral damage doesn't rest with the aggressor. And secondly, there aren't any truly innocent persons in the world. Okay, 
Now, granted, there's some. We might speak in terms of relative innocence. Say, children have not uh, uh, graduated in their evil quite so far as adults have. But note here the point here uh, for this. You know, completely destroy these people. Otherwise, verse eighteen, they will teach you to follow all of the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods. And he will sin against the Lord your God. In fact, that's the reason given for not for killing the children, because they'll grow up into adult adulterers. Uh, so there again, this is this is not a it's, this is this is certainly appropriate. And I know I know we, we we tend to think that that's just not God is loving, and we again we we tend to elevate one attribute over another, and so we think God is more loving than He is holy. And so, you know, the love's got to win out, and so this this wrath of God has to has to be mollified at that point. But that's, that's simply not the case. The holiness of God must be satisfied. Well, he loved Jacob and hated Esau. Right. That was first. So. Yeah, and it, probably what we have there is probably a more of an elective priority here. So, you know, he chose. Jacob, he, he didn't choose Esau. He, he rejected him. So, and that's within the priority, of the, the prerogative of God, because ultimately, what there, he didn't know either of them anything. I mean, I, I give an illustration to whenever, but if you you know, happen to go, you know, you're driving home past some creek or some river somewhere, and uh, you know you see a truck filled with a hundred puppies fly off appear and go into the Detroit River there. Uh, you see all the puppies trying to get out there and so you just jump in swim over and you dive down because the trunk is, truck is sinking you just you just reach in and you you, you, you know, open some little door and two dogs come out and you, you hoist them up and bring them to shore and everybody cheers. Well, why, why do they cheer? Well because you saved two puppies. Well, what about all those other puppies that you let die? Uh, are, are, are people upset with you because of that? Well, no, because you didn't have to save any of them. Or the driver. Well, well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're ruining my illustration. <laughs> but, but the fact is, you, you, owed, you had no debt to any of those dogs. And you could have been perfectly righteous in letting them all die. It would have been appropriate. Uh, in fact, I would. I can't swim, so a dumb thing for me to try and jump in and try and save those dogs uh, because because they, they you don't you don't have a debt to those dogs to save them. And for that reason, it is not unrighteous for you not to save them. Well, this is the that's the plight of mankind, right? Uh, every single person on this planet is is under the wrath of God. He owes no man anything. And so we don't we, we shouldn't think of him as unjust for not saving everyone. We should think of him as gloriously merciful for saving anyone. But it's hard hard for us to think in those terms because obviously it is within the power of God to save all the puppies. But he has no obligation to do so. There were only certain instances where he pronounced that particular judgment too, right? Which judgment? Okay. You know, like having 
other uh, the tribes things. like Joshua go and destroy, or you know, these commands. They they were like a permanent jihad, like some religion. Right, and even in those, there were there were provisions for people who, like Rahab, she's one of these people, and and there's there there are these conditions sort of built in, assuming assuming they don't. They don't repent and come to you and help you, kill them all. But here, here's a person who actually, you know, did the right thing, and she's elvish from the line of Christ, right? And so even even in that justice, there was always room for mercy in God. But uh, but uh, in the justice of God, He doesn't have to spare anyone. That's, that's not necessary for Him. So when should we think of wrath as an attribute of God? Some will put wrath, the wrath of God, in the list of God's attributes. I don't, and here's why. Uh, wrath is the disposition of God that arises from his holiness and constitutes his necessary and inevitable reaction to sin. It can't be said that God is wrath in the sense of an attribute, like we can say God is love. Because in the absence of sin... There is no wrath. Okay, so once we get to heaven, there will be no exhibition of divine wrath because this sin is going to be eliminated from heaven. And so we will not know the wrath of God. Again, this is perhaps, you know, it gives sort of that explanation in Romans chapter 9 why it is that there are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Because without it, we his, his wrath and holiness would not be made known. Okay. And because of the, the inclusion of these people, we do know it. We know more about God uh, because of the evil that is in the world. And as we've said last time, that's part of the best possible world to be able to know God truly and fully uh, and um, from, from what he does and, and is. Okay? So the same cannot be said of, of, of love, mercy, because even in the most violent of expressions, of divine wrath, God's attributes are always present. Okay. Here's another question that often comes up. If God is truly just, why doesn't he treat all people equally? Because that's what we tend to think in terms of, when we t- when we think of the word justice, we usually think, in, if we were to put a definition on it, we would be thinking of the word equity. God has to treat everyone equally. And so God has to elect everyone. He's got to save everyone. He's got to die for everyone. He's got to, you know, he's got to regenerate everyone, um, and so on and so forth. But this idea of justice as fairness or equitable treatment shouldn't be imposed upon the biblical understanding of divine justice. As we've noted above, the biblical concept of justice as used in scripture, sorry, I tried to eliminate these, but I left a few of them in. The tzedek uh, word group in Hebrew and the Dikaios word group in Greek is interchangeable with the concept of righteousness. To be just is to act in accordance with the standard of righteousness. God is always just, but He's not always equitable. And uh, I think that's 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 hard. It's a hard concept for people, particularly in a day uh, where where equity, social equity, is sort of the big buzz idea that's out there in, in the news and such. And so so the idea of someone being less than equitable or being prejudicial 
seems to be at odds with justice. But in God, it isn't. You know, it, uh, to, for God to be prejudicial can be a pro. I mean, I mean, we're 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 all prejudicial at times. We're all discerned. Uh, we all we all prefer our children to other you know, our own children to other kids that are wandering the streets, right? We do privilege them, and and God does the same. That doesn't make us unjust uh, to privilege uh, one child over another. God is not unjust to privilege uh, uh, one person above another. That's there's, justice and equity are not the same thing, even though they're they're thought of as 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 synonymous concepts. Okay, so does this make God partial or prejudicial? I say no, yes and no. Partiality, the bad kind, is exercised only when a party has a claim to something and doesn't receive it. If God owed everyone a favor, then he would be unjust to withhold it from one person and give it to another. But partiality, the bad kind, is absent when no one has any rights Culpability for sin cannot be predicated of God in such instances. Okay, he does he, is, he has no obligation, and so there cannot be a, 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 a criticism thrown at him that he is partial or prejudicial or un, unjust. Okay, not necessarily equitable, but he's not unjust. Okay, we're going to have to get a little bit into that. We'll, we'll, we'll pick this back up when we talk about the love of God because this is a sticky point for us because God's Love does not seem to be extended at extra to, to, to those without him in some in an equitable way. And so we, we wonder sometimes how that can be. If God is infinitely loving, how is it that God can love some people more than others? And so it's going to come back again. But for now, we're, we're just sort of establishing that justice does not mean equity. So... You know, just trying to reconcile that with John three sixteen. You know, God so loved the world. You know, whoever. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's there's debate, and I don't tend to get into it on 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 the extent of the atonement, whether Christ died for everyone equally. I'm not inclined to think he did. I mean, the fact is that. Whatever you answer that, we we still go back to the question of election. And God didn't elect people equally; He didn't regenerate people equally. So, whether or not He died equally for all men, I don't think He did. But even even if He did, it still doesn't solve our problem because we've we've got we've got God not electing everybody. And not regenerate, and and he's the one who regenerates. He's the he's the primary actor in that. So the fact that he does not regenerate everyone when he could, and he does not elect everyone when he could, does not impugn his justice. He doesn't have to elect anyone. He doesn't have to regenerate anyone. Now we we will have to get into it on on the question of love as to what is. What is the basis of his prejudice, if we can put it that way? What is what is what is uh, how does he decide who it is that he elects, who it is he regenerates, and and so we'll we'll, we'll pick this discussion up under the doctrine of love. But for now, all we're trying to establish is it is not unjust for him to do that. 
Okay, uh, but we we need more to that answer before uh, before we're done with it. And so yeah, we'll we'll come back to this. But, but very good thoughts. Okay. So practically, guarantees just God's holiness, righteousness, justice, guarantees the positive finality of judgment against sin and sinners. And, you know, I think sometimes we think it's wrong to think this way, but it's not. It's the way the biblical writers thought. It's the way David thought. Is God set things straight, and God will. He will someday do that, and 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 those who stand against us will get what's coming to them. It also guarantees that no good deed will be forgotten. So it impels us to do good deeds, right? Because there are there are rewards uh, that uh, that accrue to those who who do what is right. There's there's value here. It also guarantees uh, the believers. Eternal security, it is by his own righteousness and justice uh, that he holds us in his hand. And it guarantees that God will never surrender to caprice in the realm of ethics, redemption, and sanctification. It just becomes sort of an arbitrary, capricious God that just sort of acts willy-nilly. He's always consistent with himself. He always will be. So there's real value in in understanding his holiness, righteousness, and justice, and not just in a negative way. Uh, there's, there's positive value to this, this, these, these doctrines. Okay, thoughts on that? Thoughts on God's holiness as a general category here. Okay, so let's move to the epistemological realm here. God is independent, infinite. And immutable with respect to his truth. God is true, and furthermore, we can say that God is the truth, the standard of truth. So by truth, we mean the perfect conformity of God's being, attributes, words, and activities to all that God is, ought to be, and claims to be. There's three aspects here. Metaphysically, he's the only true God. He's the only claimant to the category God. He's the only one who answers to the authentic idea of God. So he is the one and only true and living God. He is the all other all other gods are false gods. He is the only real one, the only true one. So the Lord our God, the Lord is one, which implies more than just numerical unity, but he is alone. He is exclusive. He is the only true God there is. Uh, Jeremiah 10.10, and uh, this is sort of the climax of one of those taunts against the gods of the nation. You know, you know, you take a piece of wood and you craft it and you set it up on a on a mantelpiece, and if you're not careful, it falls over. So you have to prop it up, or you, or you, it's like a scarecrow in a in a in a melon patch, and you have to sort of make sure it's got sticks underneath it so it doesn't fall over, and it doesn't. It has no has no eyes, has no ears, has no have no legs, you have to carry it around and he just he just just really lights into these false gods, but then he closes it out here in verse 10, but our God Yahweh is the true God he's the living God he's not like the rest of these wannabes okay John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they might knew, know you 
the only true God, the only God who is. Okay, so so God is the true God. He's the genuine God. He's the only one that answers to the uh, uh, descriptor God. Epistemologically here, God is the truthful God. The knowledge, <clears throat> declarations, representations of God eternally conform to his own being. He always represents things as they actually are. His prophetic decrees are always accurate. They always come true because what he says is true. He's truthful. Your word is true. God can't lie. Great many passages we could pull up, but these suffice. But then ontologically, we find that God embodies truth. So he's not only the true God and the truthful God, but he is truth embodied. It says here, I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the truth. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. All true knowledge resides in God. Uh, things are true uh, only because they are in conformity to what God says. I mean, that's how we define truth. Uh, we, we sometimes define truth as that which corresponds to reality, but then we wonder, then, what's reality? Uh, probably a better definition of, of what what truth is is that which uh, corresponds to what God would say about a given thing, or however God has made it. That's what's truth, because you've got a foundation there that's, that's impregnable. Okay? And God is truth. So truth, by definition, is that which conforms to God. That what God would say about a given thing. There's no reality external to God by which truth may be measured. God is the standard of all truth. How do we know whether something is true? Well, the Bible tells us, uh, and you know, and it even speaks in within its pages to true uh, truths outside of itself by giving us the parameters for what is true and right and and just. So uh, we understand what truth is. Uh, from from God. God is the embodiment of truth. So, what does truth look like? Well, we wouldn't know about the truth of God were he not interacting with us. And the interaction of God's truth with us manifests itself in this word faithfulness. Faithfulness. He is consistent. He is true to his word. He is true to his character whenever he deals with us. So faithfulness, then, is God's trustworthiness to act or to perform in accordance with his words and promises. Great comfort to be found in the faithfulness of God. Faithfulness is the ethical and transitive dimension of God's truth, divine truth. It is truth emanated. It's truth extending out from God. So the idea is that if God is truth himself, he will be faithful to all of his creatures. Lamentations 3, this is the centerpiece of that rather mournful uh, book, book of Lamentations, hard to get through, right? But here's the climax, right? These are the, this, these are the, this is the center section of this uh, chiastic song, uh, uh, poem here. It says, because of the Lord's great love, his chesed, his, his loving kindness, his covenant love, we will not be consumed. Despite all the bad things that are happening that lead to the lament here, most likely of Jeremiah, we know 
that because of God's covenant faithfulness, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We burst out into song, right? Psalm 119.90, your faithfulness continues through all generations. And here's in Romans 11, this is not so much a, the use, the word is not used here, but the concept is there. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Again, this is in the context of God's promises to Israel. He's going to make them a great nation. He's going to bless them. And, and, they, and they are going to be a blessing to the nations. And it looks like, you know, Israel's been scattered and lost. And this is Paul's complaint here. You know, what about my people, Israel? What, what's, what's going to happen to them? And here's the assurance that comes close to the end of this three-chapter section, Romans 9 to 11. You now the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. He will be faithful to his promises. He will keep them, and there will be a restoration of his people Israel, because God is faithful. God is faithful. In what is God faithfulness? Faithful? Well, he's faithful in respect to his covenant obligations. We looked at that already here in in Romans 11, but Deuteronomy 7. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God. What's that mean? Well, he keeps his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and who keep his command. He's faithful in the realm of redemption. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. And the context here is sanctification. He will, if you continue reading there, he will sanctify you fully or entirely at the coming of Christ. There, there's a work in progress here, and because of the faithfulness of God, it will not be left undone. You will progress in your holiness and your sanctification to the point of perfection at the second coming. He's faithful in preserving his people in temptation. This is an important one to us because we're tempted each day. God is faithful. He will never let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he always provides a way out so that you can stand up under it. God is faithful. I don't know if any of you here have some sort of besetting sin will sometimes be called an addicting sin and you despair of ever conquering this problem there's a promise here that you are not tempted above what you are able God is faithful with every temptation is always a way of escape so that you can bear up under it how do I know that? Well, because the Bible says so and because God is a faithful God Okay, so uh, be, be aware of that uh, when uh, next time that uh, sin comes uh, rolling around, and, and you say, "I just, I just can't resist." Well, yes, you can't. If you're if you're a believer, <clears throat> because uh, God is faithful, and that's the promise He's made. He's also faithful to forgive sin. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't bring this up in such proximate context to that. If you do sin, if you if you if you don't avail yourself of that way of escape. And you do fall into sin, and we do, right? God will forgive us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive us our sins and purify 
us from all unrighteousness and and puts you back where you were and says, okay, there's a way of escape. I don't want to see, see you back here again. Okay. He's also faithful in answering prayer. O Lord, hear my prayer, listen to my cry for mercy in your faithfulness and in your righteousness come to my relief. So here's an appeal here. In fact, a lot of the the, uh, the the prayers of the Old Testament and the Psalms are predicated on various attributes of God. Because you are this way, please do X. Because you're you are this way, then then please do this. And so I think it's a good pattern for us in our prayers. Uh, so, you know, in fact, if you can't put a good reason to your prayers, uh, perhaps that's an indication that uh, your prayers may be a bit unfounded you know it's not as though there's anything that says what you can pray for and what you can't pray for but if you can't give a biblical reason why this prayer ought to be answered uh, then perhaps it's a selfish prayer or a, or a prayer without without much basis and so and we find here that uh, oftentimes uh, the attributes of God are the foundation or the basis for prayer and oftentimes it's the faithfulness of God you've promised this to your this to your children Please, please make good on your promise. And so, and so, going to ask you. Yeah. That, sorry, back on the uh, last one, on uh-huh. First Corinthians ten. Yeah. What are your thoughts in terms of um, He will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear? In terms of what are your thoughts on suffering fitting into that? Not that it's a yeah. temptation to sin, but a um, suffering can be a temptation to yes. sin. Yes. Well, suffering can be a temptation, and to the degree that suffering is a temptation, he will not cause you to suffer in such a way that you are tempted beyond degree. Nonetheless, that does not mean that our, our temptation always, our, our suffering almost, must always end. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, suffering has many purposes to it. And so, you know, we, we can suffer long. Um, and we are given the promise that the suffering will not break us or, or need not break us uh, because God is faithful. Nonetheless, that doesn't mean that the suffering necessarily must end. And the fact is we all die. <laughs> we're all dying and we're all going to die. So we're all, all, to, all of us uh, will, will face terminal suffering at some point. Right. Yeah, but then, but, but then you won't be suffering. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. But 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 the but the point being that the suffering that you have is not of of a of a of a quality that it must necessarily cause you to break. There's always a way of escape. So, but there isn't a promise that there won't be suffering, or it won't be just severe suffering. Just not suffering that will that will tempt you beyond the possibility of of. Of enduring it, right? Yeah, the point isn't the suffering. The point is, you know, growing to be more like him. Right. Yeah. There's any number of reasons for suffering, and some sometimes the complexity of it is such that you, know, you, you don't ever even see what the the point of the suffering. I mean, it's it's one of those things that God might be doing something for someone else or someplace else for the whole church or for for the whole nation and you're you're sort of caught up in it and so you know you, you'd say I, oh, why can't I why don't I stop suffering well because God has this grand purpose that and you're in it but 
it's not all about you, right? <laughs> it's, uh, sometimes God is doing really big and massive and marvelous things, and you're just a you're just a you know just one of the cogs in the in the in the in the gears that is that is the uh, grinding out of God's purposes. So, and sometimes you get you get crushed by it right there, but uh, that doesn't. Uh, you don't know, and perhaps at the end of the day, you'll never know. Why is it that I suffered like that? Uh, because you don't, that's not the promise that's there. But there is the promise that in that suffering you will not be tempted beyond that which you were able to bear. But suffering works glory. Uh, suffering is just mentioned so often in the New Testament as a good thing. You know, it's 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 part of the glory. You know, the the the, the suffering now is part of the glory to come. And it, you you the glory that you enjoy at the end is greater because of the suffering you have now. And it's hard to convince yourself of that when you're going through the suffering, but it's the way it is. It's a refining work. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so God is faithful, which is the expression of his truth. Let's move then to the uh, last of the categories here. I don't know if we'll get through the we won't get through the whole section here, but God is good. So with reference to the ethical realm, remember we're going through, uh, routinely here we go through the categories of philosophy in his being, in his knowledge, and then also in his ethic. God is a good God. So what do we mean by that? Well, by calling God good, we we find that he is naturally inclined to promote the welfare, uh, that word's been ruined, the well-being <laughs> of his creatures, <laughs> lest you be confused, he is fundamentally a benevolent God. The term is a broad one, of course, just as it is in English, word good, and subsumes within it the ideas of loving kindness, long-suffering, mercy, grace, and love. And so we'll have to, we'll have to work our way through all of those uh, attributes of God, but the fundamental one here uh, that that sort of governs all of these is the fact that God is good. You said of His creatures, all created. Yeah, in fact, we're going to see that that like God animal. Yes, I think I think we're particularly talking about people, but but He's but He. I mean, we we know that He cares about birds that fall. He's, uh, he's uh, so He's He's He makes sure that we're. Uh, kind to the life of our beasts. And so, so, I mean, this isn't just believers. Or it's no, I think common it, grace. Yeah, I think all of God's common graces are included here. So the goodness of God, I mean, probably the most, what we, we tend to think about is goodness to people and particularly his, his elect. But I don't know that it's restricted there too. God is just a God is just a generous and good and benevolent God. He he seeks the good of, of all that is all that he has made. We'll see that here as we work through it. We'll start here with the love of God. The love of God. Definition here from Alpha J. McLean, that which that in God which moves him to give himself and of his gifts spontaneously, voluntarily, 
righteously for the good of personal beings regardless of their merit or response. That is the love of God. How do we we see this uh, routinely in the scripture? It's ubiquitous. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Sort of wraps up all of the elements of the love of God there all in one. First John 4, here's, here it is, the, the, the idea of the attributes as nouns. God is love. And how is it that we know it? How, I mean, how how could we know that God is love? Well, because he expresses it to us. He shows his love among us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the, 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 the satisfaction of the wrath of God that our sins caused. So God's love, what does it, what does it look like? We have, oftentimes, rather have a jaded understanding of what love is, uh, because of our our society has so polluted the idea that we scarcely recognize it anymore. Uh, but the, uh, the the what is what is God's love described as? Well, first of all, I'd say that God's love is fundamentally God's self communication. It is the expression of his self. As is the case with all of the divine attributes, God is not only a loving God, but is himself love. And so when, how do we know God's love? He shares. Okay, uh, We know God's love because he shares it with us. He expresses it toward us. So he, so he takes of that which is in himself and what is himself, and shares it with us. Okay, now, I don't know if we could maybe uh, trying to the, the idea of attributes as nouns. We sometimes talk about you know, uh, yeah, maybe you don't read Jane Austen model, uh, novels, but you know, but you know what you know, the woman walks in and graces the room. Okay, what's well, a very a verbal picture, right? Well, grace is an attribute, right? You don't normally think of it as a verb, but but sometimes it, she graces the rooms. That is, she emanates grace from herself as she comes into the room. Uh, so it's a picturesque way of using the word God. God loves. And it's the same thing. So God, God, this this what is what is intrinsic to Him emanates from Him. He loves. In the same way a woman might grace a room, God loves us. So, so the same same concept. I don't know if that helps or hinders, but but that, that's the idea here. So what does what? And here's here's a, a, a some material here on love that perhaps is a little bit seems a little odd until you understand that this is what love is essentially. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son by showing him all that he does. So it's a self-disclosure. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those whom he is pleased to give it. So it's 
It's the prerogative of God to share his life with others, and he grants then to his son to be a co-sharer of love. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted judgment to the son, so the authority to grant life and the authority to judge is granted to him, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him, for as the father has life in himself, so he has also granted the son to have life in himself. And the, the whole thing is precipitated by this understanding that God is love, and this is why all this is true. God shares. God shares himself with his son. And his son shares with us. This is the expression of love. The, the sharing of oneself, of one's gifts, of one's essence, of one's, of one's uh, uh, riches, wealth, Okay, that is that is the expression of love. It's a self-sharing, uh, and uh, that's fundamentally what love is. It's you know it's it's not the you know the the hypersexualized idea of love that we find all around us in our society today. That's not love. I mean, it's, it's so, so far from love. It's actually the opposite of love, right? It's 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 the it's the gratification of self. It's the it's the opposite direction of love. Love is a self sharing. Uh, what we find as love today is actually a self absorption. Okay, and so and so so what we what uh, the love has been redefined to be the opposite of itself. Okay, but God's love is a self sharing. Okay, so God loved the world that He gave. He shared with us His only Son. Okay, so that's that's the that's that's the fundamental understanding of what love love is. It's a self sharing, it's a self communication of God. That's what love is, and so that's that's why you know we sometimes say love is a choice, right? You know, you know I I've stopped loving my wife. Well, then start loving her. <laughs> you know, is that I mean that's. It's the, you know, that's the. I don't know if it was a confession or what. <laughs> no, 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 no. But you know, so, you know, sometimes you hear that, right? In in in, 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 uh, in a counseling setting, I've stopped loving my spouse. I've stopped loving my wife. I've stopped loving my husband. And you know, you, you don't want to do that. Uh, what is that? We've seen that video. Or just stop it. Just stop. Yeah. It. <laughs> you probably, you probably, there's probably a way to couch this a little bit better than this, but the answer to I've stopped loving my wife is, well, then you better start again because it's commanded, right? And it's a choice to share of who you are and what you have and, every, and everything that's in you. Share it with your wife because that's what love is. And it's, it's a choice. I'm not going to say it's not a feeling. And there is a feeling involved with that. Hopefully, enjoy giving of yourself freely to uh, to your spouse here. But but if you if if you find yourself not having that feeling going, and it doesn't that doesn't you know doesn't mean you don't have to love anymore. Okay, loving is a choice fundamentally because it is an act of self communication. So it's self communication. It's an act of self sacrifice as well. So God not only gives himself to his creatures and shares with them, he gives himself up for his creatures. So it's a substitutionary kind of thing. We find this regularly through scripture. Christ loved us 
by giving himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Husbands, okay, back to this thing again. Husbands, love your lo- your loves your wives. How? Uh, give up yourself, just as Christ loved the church and died. Okay, the point here is not so much that you need to take a bullet for your wife, although I <laughs> suppose you probably should if it comes to that. Uh, but... <laughs> But, but but the idea here is that true love is self-sacrificial. It gives up what is yours for the benefit of the one who is loved. Okay, so that's that's the nature of true love. And it's, it's, it's exhibited here in the love that Christ has for the church. You need to love your wife just as Christ loved the church by giving up everything for her. Because she's your wife. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, because he loved me and gave himself for me. Okay. Again, not so much just that he gave up his life on the cross, but that he gave himself to me to live in me, right? The life I live now in the body is the Christ life within me. So not only did he give up his life and die on a cross, but he actually shares with me his life, right? Uh, you have Second Peter 1 starts out with this idea that we are participants, are, part, are partakers of the divine nature, which almost sounds, it goes too far almost. It doesn't, but, uh, but you know, except perhaps interpretation. But, uh, but the idea is that in regeneration, he, he shares with us his life. So that we can, we so that he can live through us as conduits of of, of God's self. So to self to self sacrifice, it's selfless. Doesn't operate on the basis of what its object can give. Rather, love operates on the basis of what it can give. It can give the object. Uh, this is the question that's asked. You know, why is it that? Why is it that God loved Israel? Well, God did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other people. Because you weren't. They had nothing to offer to God. They were the low. They were, they were low. They were despised. They were, they're, they're, they, they could, they could in no way contribute to God. So why is it that God loved them? Well, God loved them. Because God loved them, which is a rather tight circle in terms of circular reasoning here, uh, but it's but it's a grand it's a grand circle, right? Why did God love you? Because He loved you, not because you could give anything back to Him. It's because He could give something to you, and He just delights in giving. Yeah, that's that's the goodness of God. He just delights in giving, and it seems that He delights in giving to the people who need the most. Uh, again, to come back to First Corinthians uh, one, not many noble, not many rich uh, are called, but low people, despised people. These are the people that God tends to ravish His love upon because it, they, it, it's it's it, it makes God's love look so grand. Romans five, when we were powerless, God died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Although a good man, 
for, for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this way. While we were sinners, he died for us. You know, so, sometimes you can you perhaps become so attached to a person who, because it was a great or good person that you would you would be willing to take a bullet for them. Okay? But that's not why Jesus took a bullet for us and died on the cross. Because uh, we weren't good. Uh, there, there was nothing in us to commend us or to make our lives so valuable that he would give up his life in order that our life might be sustained. Now, there, there's nothing in us. He did it just because he was selfless. It's also self-induced. Okay, It's voluntary. It's not under any compulsion. It doesn't operate on the basis of merit or reciprocation is in its object. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It was his choice. I will love them freely, Hosea 14 says. Ephesians 1, to the praise of his glorious grace, he has freely given to us in the one that he loves. And the context here is election and predestination. It's self-induced. It's voluntary. God is the, God is the chooser. Uh, it's not that we loved him, but that he loved us. He was the primary agent here. And, and he does so voluntarily because he's the first agent. Okay. If we were the first and he was simply responding to us because of something we had done, then it would be sort of reactionary or something of a debt that he ha- has to love us. But that's not the way it is. He loves first. At, at which, which means it's wholly voluntary, self-induced there to keep the self-ideas going here. And then finally, love is self-referencing. God's love always operates according to the ethical standard of God's own holiness. It is always a righteous love. He cannot simply love willy-nilly. It cannot overlook or condone sin and cannot do wrong for the sake of its object. Okay. So God so loved the world. And you probably have picked up along the way that that doesn't mean God loved the world so much. But, but God loved the world so, in, in this way, thusly, he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So this is the way God loved us. It was a self-sacrificing love. It is a self-referencing love. And he could not extend his love to us had he not first satisfied the holy demands of God. And so it's self-referential. The love had to be this way in order uh, for it to to, to reach us. So all of these define here what love is from God to us. It also gives us a sense, then, of what our love sought to be as well. Uh, So we're already out of time here, but uh, next time we'll talk about some of the objections, including the one that you raised here. Uh, How how can God be, uh, be selective? and who he extends his love to, what gives him the right or the ability to do that, what is the standard whereby God operates in the expression of his love. So so we'll come back to your question next time. Sorry we didn't get to it tonight, but we'll come back. Okay.